Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Yeah, it's, I mean, one thing I think that's important for us to come to terms with um, is that the, the fallout of the corporate transformation of American medicine simply does damage things. It, it actually hurts things. Um, it hurts patients. It hurts our souls. It hurts doctors, nurses, PAs, respiratory therapists, everyone who has to um, reorient their, the thing that they experienced as a calling, as something that pulled them towards um, this difficult um, space that we inhabit where um, people come in and they're sick and they're scared. And we feel pulled to that space for some reason you know, to meet them there in whatever capacity we meet them there. And um, I think that I think that the what the corporate transformation is that is so damaging to that space is a translation of value into a single currency that is literally currency. It's the transformation of every act into money. And, I mean, literally every act, where you're wearing a badge, where your time, you know, your time, everything, your place is, everything is monitored, and, and where, for, I know for myself, you know, in my annual reviews, um, I have had a series of monthly reports on my RVUs which is a metric that tracks how much money I'm bringing in. And it's a very complicated thing. It's usually 15 pages long. It's got graphs that show how my revenue generation compares with my peers. And there are percentiles that I'm supposed to be hitting. And if, if I'm not, it's a problem, you know? I get a, I get critiqued. Um, for me, it's not that bad because I'm a hospitalist. All the stuff that I do is in hospital. I'm not in the clinic, and I'm a subspecialist, and so I focus on kids with cancer. And I can't just make people have cancer, you know. Like there's, there's no. It's not the kind of thing that I can. Um, force a bunch of new patients to show up. Um, and so there's a sense in which, you know, when I listen to RVU talk, I'm like, well, what, what do you want me to do? And there's nothing, there's no answer to that. Um, and so I'm in a better position than people, for example, who are in primary care, um, where a lot of what's happening there is meeting people around a question or around a preventative kind of approach or something that would be relevant to every human being. 
And so it's not dependent on having a certain diagnosis other than the diagnosis of being human. And so you really can have just floods of people coming in. And the way that you increase revenue is to shorten the time that you spend with a person and increase the revenue-generating interventions that you um, prescribe for the person. And that can be soul-killing, you know? As you go from 30 minutes to 25 to 20 to 15 to 10, and the question comes up, is there any way we could squeeze two more minutes out? You know, because two more minutes, maybe we could add in one or two more patients tacked on at the end of the day. And it leaves providers with a sense that they have to make a choice between no longer being present in the room, just, you know, focusing on their typing, or being present for the few minutes that they have with the patient and then taking all their notes home, where instead of regenerating, instead of finding any kind of rest or respite, instead of spending time with their family or their friends or reading or whatever it is that regenerates them, they're just, they're just working. They're trying to catch up, trying to catch up. As soon as they finish their notes and their billing, they're on to email and they're looking at all the little red exclamation points that are out to the left and trying to figure out which ones are important in between the hundred pieces of spam that come from the New York Times and everywhere else. You know. And so this whole compression of value into revenue leads to a kind of um, a kind of efficiency that I think is alien to um, to our souls, alien to the pace of the human body and the pace of the human mind that um, that that works at the at, at the in the way that it works and it's. You know, if you think about the heart and you think about systole and diastole, if, you, if your only mode of cardiac function is contraction, you know, you're going to die. If you don't alternate between contraction and relaxing, contraction and relaxing, you know, squeezing out the blood, letting it come back in, you're going to die. And... I honestly think that this alternating sort of um, rhythm between these two modes of intensity and recovery, um, that, that the idea that staying squeezed is a long-term solution um, to increasing value is insane. Now, the thing about it is that the, the corporate model, I am getting to the question, <laughs> the corporate model um, can view people as expendable when the corporation is Amazon. So if it's Amazon.com in the warehouse, it can take its employees, as has been widely reported, <laughs> in the last couple of months on the conditions in the warehouse. And it can have a number of boxes that you have to, you know, fill and unload, fill and unload, fill and unload, you know, and you just keep doing that. If you start falling below your quota, you get reported. If you get reported four times, you're fired. But there's so many people who will come in and fill these jobs 
that the people themselves can become expendable. You know, Amazon, Amazon is a logistics company, and, and it's amazing what they've accomplished logistically. But people are, are expendable in those contexts, and there are many places where Jeff Bezos has, you know, begun to increase his success with replacing people, you know, with robots. And so eventually that's going to happen. There'll be a lot more leisure, but it'll be hard to enjoy it because they're going to be hungry, you know? But if you're in a business like that, you can think in terms of maximal efficiency. Um, the problem with medicine is that that's just, not, that's just not a model that maps onto the meaning of what we're doing. And that's where I have a great deal of problem with this transformation because I feel like it is, it is, um, it's evacuating the field of a particular kind of opportunity that doesn't show up in a whole lot of different places. Everyone, it's not just people in medicine who experience this squeeze. Everyone has trouble with keeping up with email, keeping up with the rule changes at work, keeping up with all these kinds of, of, of things. As the country shifts towards having corporate mentality, meaning not corporate, but the mentality of a corporation, as the sort of baseline rules, um, the, the assumed starting place for how you organize. Um, it doesn't map very well onto medicine because the frenetic people who are experiencing the same kind of thing in, in our culture, when they, when they come to us, when they come to this space of, um, of medicine, they're coming, they're, they're coming in with their body and with their mind and with their worries and with their secrets and with their shames and with um, their memories and with their history, um, with their suspicions. But they're coming in and something really important is happening in the room. They may just be coming in for you know, their annual physical exam. I had one of those like 10 years ago. <laughs> and so I know about annual physical exams. And um, when you come in for an annual physical exam, uh, you may think you're just coming in, you know, get your blood pressure checked and maybe check a CBC or whatever labs they decide to draw. But that's not the only thing that's happening. What you're coming in for is um, to arrive at a pronouncement. And it's a pronouncement that only your, only your medical person, you can call him your doctor. You know, we've got, I don't know if y'all know Frank Nealon or not. He's this great internist who um, is retired. He's earned, he's earned the right to be a curmudgeon, and he's extremely wise. Um, but one of the things that he says very often is, you know, uh, he talks about doctoring, and he says, but by doctor, here's what I mean. He said, not all physicians are doctors, and by no means are all doctors physicians, you know? Um, there's a lot of doctoring that occurs that has nothing to do with what the letters are. It's just you understand what doctoring is. And so when people come in, even for their annual physical exam, 
they're getting their labs, and they're getting their chest x-ray and their blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. But what they're really there for is the final thing that happens, which is the pronouncement. And the pronouncement is um, your health is great. You're in really good shape. Just keep doing what you're doing. Or the pronouncement is, you know, um, I found, and then you fill in the blank, I found this thing. Um, you know, oh, really? Like, 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 what does that mean? Is there something I can do about it? Because my worry is maybe I'm in risk. I'm in danger. You know, is there something I can do to mitigate this risk? Or it can be um, door closed and the doctor actually sits down. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and you hear, um, I, have some difficult, I have some difficult news that I need to share with you. And all of a sudden, you've hit a before and after moment where your life completely changes after the doctor tells you, I saw a large mass on your chest x-ray. I felt a large mass when I was examining you. And that ultrasound that we got shows that it's growing up from your pancreas. And I'm afraid you've got pancreatic cancer. And we see some spots on your liver. And when pancreatic cancer spreads, we don't know how to cure that. Um... And so when you're waiting for the pronouncement, there are all these possibilities that could happen at the moment of pronouncement. So even if it looks like you're just coming in, getting your labs, getting your blood pressure checked, and the doctor is saying, yeah, you look good. We'll see you back in a year. Even if that's all that it looks like and you go back out to your car and, you know, um, something momentous has happened in those few minutes, which is that there was a period of uncertainty where you did not yet know what the pronouncement was going to be. And in that waiting, in that just short period of waiting, um, you come to terms with, you come in contact with your own mortality, your own fears, um, the things that you do care about, what would happen if the doctor came in. Um, if you hear them sort of chattering outside the door before they come in, you're like, well, I wonder, like, why aren't they just coming in? Like, what are they talking about? There's going to be a little bit of worry in that moment. It's a tiny little thing. Just chatter outside the door. But it, it raises a question because there's something important on the line here. This is my body. This is my only platform for reaching the rest of you and for all of my life and for, for doing the things that I want to do. So this matters in a profound way. Even in the simplest interaction between a patient and their, and their caregiver, but if you go even a few inches past that most routine of interactions, you begin to enter into a completely, um, a, a, just a deeply complicated world where um, there may be an examination that the doctor wasn't planning on doing, but decides that there's something that, that points her to do the examination. And she says, you know... Um, well, here's what I need to do. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound at all pleasant. <laughs> or maybe it sounds embarrassing. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I become aware of my unguarded body in the moment, you know? Um, I become aware of um, this request that I, you know, disrobe, 
that I um, get into an uncomfortable space that in the rest of my day, I'm in control of my life, you know? And all of a sudden now, you know, the air's a little bit colder and the paper's, you know, crinkly and I'm sitting there in this gown and I'm wondering what's going to happen, you know? And I am vulnerable. And, and that kind of vulnerability is not something that shows up very often in my life. Because of the nature of, you know, the way that, that I'm in my life. But I certainly feel it in that moment. I'm very aware of something happening in there. Um, if a diagnosis comes along that seems trivial in a sense, you know, it's the 10,000th time you've seen sinusitis. And there's just nothing about sinusitis that excites you anymore. You don't, you don't get, you know, all, you know, like quivery looking at air fluid levels in, in the x-ray. But to this person, it matters. You know, you can do a simple service. They're having pain. They've had it now for, you know, a couple of weeks. And they've, they've tried, you know, all their little home remedies and they're not working. You say, oh, well, yeah, you know, you've got a lot of tenderness here and air fluid levels. And you've got this purulent drainage. I can help you. You know, here's your prescription. So you can do a small service. There's that. But they may also have been, you know, it's like, well, why did it take you two or three weeks to come in or to, to tell me about it? Um, you know, well, Doc... Um, to be perfectly honest, um, I had a friend at work, you know, who died of a, of a brain tumor, and, uh, and he just had, you know, some pain kind of like this, and, and uh, I was, you know, sort of worried about maybe I have a brain tumor. You mean for two or three weeks you've been carrying the burden that I might have a brain tumor, and now you're bringing in this, this, this thing that you've been hiding. You didn't want to even talk about it with anyone because just to mention it is scary to you because you're terrified of death. And all of a sudden, it looks like it's being visited on you. And so in that moment, what's going to happen when I say, well, it's sinusitis, is that there is a massive like shift in this person's like They've been given a new lease on life. For two weeks, they thought their life might be coming to a hasty end, and now all of a sudden, it looks like they may have life that they weren't anticipating. They're not dying of a brain tumor. They have sinusitis. They can take an antibiotic for two weeks, and they're going to be fine, you know? And they're relieved by this, and they're overly grateful, you know? I mean, you should put a tip cup out, because they would put <laughs> tips in there. And, um, but they walk out to their car now with a kind of relief, that they, wa they walked in with dread. And, um, and that's a very powerful kind of thing that happens. In their life, they may very well rethink things. They may rethink their work. They may rethink how they prioritize stuff. Because two hours ago, I thought I was a dead man. And now the doctor has said that I just have this infection that can be treated, and I'm going to be okay. But... After that scare, I need to take seriously how I order my life. These are the kind of things that can happen in the simplest interaction. I dismiss nothing that happens in medicine. But that's the thing, is that when we come in, we come in with everything on the line. Even for the simplest checkup, we come in with everything on the line. Because at the moment of pronouncement, the pronouncement may be, I'm sorry that I have to tell you this, but you have metastatic pancreatic cancer and you need to get your affairs in order. And so no matter what, when I go to the doctor, everything is on the line. How many places have that as a daily 
rep repeated experience throughout the day. Every single patient, everything is on the line. They're waiting for a pronouncement of some sort. And how that's handled is part of the art. And it's difficult to get to a place where you, you can read what the need is in the room. You know, is there a weight in this room that's out of proportion to what at least I perceive? It's sinusitis. Like, I didn't think this was like an earth-shaking event, but apparently it is. And I want to know why. Well, you know, I, I, I sort of rehearsed those several simple vignettes just to say that medicine, in its, even in its most mundane form, is anything but mundane. And it simply does not translate into the, you know, moving the box at Amazon, you know. And we can talk about the spiritual meaning of that, too, some other day. But the model does not map onto what actually is the task of the practice. And so you had a question, which was, well, what do you do when you're in an institution, Duke, for example, you know, which is a nonprofit institution that made $458 million in profit last year, um, has decimated its social work program, and is, is widely viewed by other institutions that I visit um, as, for some people, an exemplar, a business model that is what they would like to emulate because in an age of, um, of you know, pretend austerity, there is no austerity. There is no, it's pretend because Jeff Bezos has $105 billion, you know. Um, it's imposed. It's, it's injustice. It's not a lack. It's not a corporate lack. Um, that's what I mean by that. But it's looked at as an incredible model for maintaining um, constant growth and fiscal health. And it always has the positive crane sign. You know, you look around, there's all these cranes building new buildings. And it's expanding into other parts of North Carolina. Um, and so in one sense, it's an exemplar. But there are other people who look at it as, um, as you know, the, the dark heart of American medicine is how it was described to me by, by our good friend Jeff Bishop, um, who's a physician and philosopher that's had an impact on a lot of us. Um, I, Jeff always overstates the case. He's hyperbolic, <laughs> but it's how he sells books, <laughs> you know. Um, but still, there's something to, you know, th this kind of assessment. So what do you do when even a place like this, which is supposed to be, and is, but, you know, an academic center, um, kind of pushing, pushing the envelope, um, where, where there needs to be a sense of redundancy and distensibility because we're, like, trying new things and we're a quaternary referral center bringing in some of the most complex cases. So there has to be room for, you know, working around these things. But if this place begins to think in terms of translating all value into money. And if you talk to any of the primary care doctors who work for Duke, they will tell you that squeezing down the times is something that's extremely, uh, it's ubiquitous. 
And if you don't make your times, you get dinged. Um, if you're not getting your notes in at a certain time, you're dinged. If you're not billing at a certain level, you're dinged, you know? And that's hard in, in something like what you're talking about. The primary care setting where the hours and minutes are being squeezed. You know, someone who is, um, you know, has a surgical specialty um, can also be squeezed in a different way because, you know, like when you walk in the operating room, there is not a single thing that I can do that will ever bring in, in one hour, the amount of money that you can bring in as a surgeon. Um, the way that the financial system is set up is that, you know, these, these kinds of procedures are paid. They bring in a lot of money. Um, but, you know, I can spend two hours with a frightened kid on the palliative care service who's trying to understand at age 11 why they're never going to get married and never go to college and never have kids and never do anything. And uh, I can bill, you know, 50 bucks. Uh, the hospital will look at that, and they will build lots of operating rooms, but it's going to be really hard for them to invest in something like palliative care because it's not a revenue generator in the same way. Now, they're going to have some kind of palliative care because they need it for PR purposes. You don't want to be running a quaternary referral center and not have palliative care. Why? Because Stanford has it, and Harvard has it, and Yale has it, and Chicago has it, and Hopkins has it. Um... But you certainly won't go overboard. You'll do, you know, just enough. It's something that we've seen here. So with the primary care question, um, you know, the point that I started out trying to make, which should have taken about 12 seconds, was that the loss is real. That the damage that this corporate transformation of value in medicine including our relationship to time and to the needs that are brought into us and to the meaning of the human body and to what it means for humans who are capable of reflective responses to their own fears, their own memories, their own experiences of injustice, um, that none of those things show up on the Excel spreadsheet that is saying what my value is. What my value is is what that RVU number looks like at the end of the day. Um, so what do you do when you walk in the room and you've got 10 minutes and you know you need to get the note done? Um, well, part of it, I think, is to just acknowledge what the loss is, because there's a loss. There's no question that there's a loss. Um, you know, I think a second thing, though, is to trust, you know, the, the, the power of presence as... Um, a qualitative thing rather than a quantitative thing. And so instead of simply thinking that the way that you bring the gift into the room is by having lots of time in the room, um, you learn how to find the other person quickly. And you let them know um, that it is a shared burden that we don't have the time that we wish that we had. You let them know that you value them in a way 
that is not defined by the fact that they have to meet, that we have to see a certain number of patients each day. You value them, and this is a shared loss. You're losing something. I'm also losing something because I would like to be with you for more time. But while I'm here, I'm here. And um, I think that there's something about presence, about learning what, and, and the important thing is, you know, we all know how to be present. Um, where the discipline comes in is how to not allow our um, cognizance of what presence is to be diminished by, by fretting over, um, over the urgent, you know, which can be tyrannical. Um, when I go into a room, I always have too many things on my mind. I always have too many notes left to write, too many emails left. I've got, you know, I know I'm running, you know, late and I'm already probably in trouble. And, but um, when I walk into the room, I try and I'm about, I don't know, I, about 70% successful. So I give myself right around a C. You know, I mean, I'm, wor- I'm working my way up. It's better than I used to be. I used to not even think about it. But I try to lay it down, just lay it all down, and, um, and do the thing that, you know, that our Christian and Buddhist saints, people like Thich Nhat Hanh um, or John Mayne um, or Richard Rohr, teach us about um, practicing meditation, practicing this sort of coming back to the center, centering prayer, things that still the mind, because practicing those sorts of things allows us, when we're about to walk into the room, to lay down all of the Facebook updates that we didn't get to, which are crucial. And you know, whatever it is people are updating these days, I don't know what people are updating. I'm such a Luddite. But to lay those down and to come in so that if you have 10 minutes, make sure that that 10 minutes is something that is artfully... Um, you, you may end up... You may wish that you could write an epic, but it may be that this visit's going to be a haiku. But a haiku can be gorgeous. It can be beautiful. Um, and so that's, that I think, those, those are the kinds of questions that to me uh, focus us when we're asking about, well, what do we mean by the art of medicine? You know, because it's such a denigrated phrase. But that's unfortunate, because I do think that, that what happens, so you say, okay, well, I've got 10 minutes. Um, and you begin to think about, well, how do you, what is, is there a beautiful way to structure 10 minutes? And what would be the elements of that? Um, for me, um, it's to stop talking so much. Yeah. Who's laughing? <laughs> um, it's really hard for me. It's so hard for me because I'm such a chatterbox. But the reason is not because I like to listen to myself talk. It's because that's how I find what's. That's how I find things. You know, it's why my classes are so frustrating because I don't. I don't have an order. I'm finding like I'm finding things in front of you. That's all I know how to do. You know, I'm not really much of a professor. Um, I admire it. I just it's just not the thing that I know how to do. But what I what I do know how to do is to is to is to roll along. So 
in 10 minutes, you know, I may have to like keep revising my art until I understand what can happen, what's possible in there, and then find a way to make what's possible possible. Um, praying the serenity prayer is something that's a really good thing to do before you go to the hospital or to the clinic. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so, you know, I ask a new kind of question. I used to focus so much on institutional change. And it was almost like I was thinking that institutional change is what's required in order for me to flourish. When the institution changes and becomes healthy, then I'll be healthy. When the institution changes, then I'll flourish. And, and that was, you can understand why you'd want to change that, you know? You know, speak truth to power and stand up to the man. It's not, I'm going to be dead before there's any kind of big change. I look at people who have way more power than me, you know? I, I think about Hillary Clinton back when Bill was president and she was trying to change some of the landscape of distributive justice in the area of healthcare and couldn't do it. Bernie Sanders can't do it. Obama couldn't do it. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, she's got a $31 trillion plan to try to change the distribution of resources to allow a more equitable approach to health care for all, but no one can see how to pay for it, you know? But they all have lots more power than me. There's no one, I don't, you know. So, my new question is, is it possible to flourish in a dysfunctional environment? And um, I think it's a good question. And I think the answer is um, somewhat. I mean, it may be that there are people who, who can find their way to profound flourishing in the context of adversity. Um, if they begin to frame the corporate transformation of American medicine as powers and principalities, they may begin to recognize, to rename the forces at play in a way that actually mobilizes their sense of their work, their flourishing, as a spiritual thing, as a, as a genuine vocation, instead of just a way to pay the bills. And they may become the kinds of people who are spiritually creative and who uncover approaches to flourishing that we had no idea were even possible, that it becomes a spiritual discipline to learn how to walk into that room with 10 minutes and walk out, and both of you have found something that um, is transformative. But I think that flourishing in a dysfunctional institution is not to say we don't want to change the institution. It's just to say the arc of change is going to be slightly longer than I thought at first. And I don't want to wait for that change to occur to begin asking questions about what happens in the room. And so far, the only thing that invades the room is the electronic medical record and the restriction on time. Everything else that happens in the room is still changeable. It's still under your control. When you close the door, it is still you and this other person. And so there's a lot of room there to be creative and asking questions about what do I do with this time? What do I do with this privilege? That I have been invited into the room of this person. I have no idea what they've brought in, or maybe I have a little bit of idea, but maybe they're hiding the most important thing. 
Maybe they didn't want to write down the most important thing, right? So I don't know. So how do I come in? What does my disposition have to be in order to be available in a way that could be... Um, that could be described in spiritual terms, in terms of presence, in terms of love, in terms of healing, in terms of, you know, depending on where you come from, a shaman. <laughs> I like shaman. <laughs> I think that's the kind of thing that we can fruitfully talk about. And it doesn't even have to be specifically, you know, Christian, even though this is TMC. And so we do frame things in this setting in a Christian way, and I think it's a powerful way to frame it. And I think we can drill down deeper than with any other language that I know of. Um, but there's also a way in which, because all of us who are, at least who are in medical schools and so forth, we have trainees, and so we're going to have access to people that we're forming and contributing to their formation. We're trying to model things. Um, whether it's, you know, success or failure. I love modeling failure, you know. Um, I, I, if I mess something up, which happens very frequently, I stick my foot in my mouth, I go down the wrong path, I accidentally say something to offend someone, or I completely miss what's supposed to be happening in the room, and I'm off chitter-chattering in this direction, and the family's becoming more and more distressed as I fail to see what's most important to them. I like to unpack my failure with the trainees that are with me. Um, but as long as, as long as we're going to have people like that with no guarantee that they share our, our worldview, this, this attempt to think about the art of medicine, to think about what flourishing in the room means for the patient and for us, um, is a kind of Matthew 25 um, spirituality. Um, you know, you, 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 when did we give you a cup of water, you know? When did we give you food? When did we clothe you? And so far as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And there's no mention in there of um, framing the, and here's a cup sponsored by Jesus. You know, that's not how Matthew 25 is set up. It's just not. And what's so beautiful about Matthew 25 is that it allows us to, to believe in the pervasiveness of the Logos to allow us to believe that creation is so utterly creation that any time love or truth or life appears, there's no way that it can appear apart from the Spirit of God. And so wherever it shows up, the Spirit is there in some way. And, um, and so I think that we can talk about this flourishing, this gift, in the same way that we talk about a glass of water, you know? If, if a stranger is thirsty, they are thirsty. Here is a glass of water. Now, from inside my worldview, I may be motivated to work on my generosity, on sharing. Maybe I'm thirsty too. Let's split the water, right? Um, but, you know, there may be a whole lot of motivations on the inside of me that they don't know, but they're thirsty. You know what they need? Water. Here's a glass. It's the same in this area. Even if we are spending time, which we should, as Christians, especially in this kind of environment, the TMC sort of environment, we have a great medical school and a great divinity school and so many opportunities to engage theologically around these issues and to see why stewardship of the body is a theological issue, like why it's profoundly theological. But in this context, um, even though we have the privilege of, of talking about these things in light of... Um, 
in light of our faith, there's a lot that we can talk about in that room, that, that little moment, those 10 minutes of, of finding what it is for both of us to flourish that we can do and share with people irrespective of what their faith is, just like we share water, just like we share food, just like we clothe the naked, you know? So when I think about those 10 minutes, I don't know what the answer is in terms of populating um, that. That, to me, is a discovery process. You know, one thing, I mean, we can find small things. We can begin to create a toolbox, a flourishing toolbox, that we teach people how to carry into each room. One simple thing I already mentioned, which is to stop the static in my own brain that's going to interrupt the information coming to me from the patient. And so if I am just frenetic and chaotic in my mind, it may take three times as long for me to pick up the signal from this ill person that um, tells me the, the direction to go. And it may or may not be in the form of words. And so if I'm frenetic, my radar's messed up. It's scrambled. And so one thing that I can do as an act of love, and for Christians as an act of faithfulness, as an act of stewardship of our time, and of the, uh, and of the, of the way in which this person has trusted us, and so stewardship of the trust, is to make sure that I'm not full of static. So that when I go in, I'm honoring this. The fa- and yes, we've got 10 minutes. That's all we've got. Even more reason to meditate and to do centering prayer and to find our way into a kind of stillness as a spiritual discipline that will open up the room, you know? A second very simple thing is to just periodically put one minute on your phone and click it and just sit there quietly for a minute to feel how long a minute of silence is, you know? You'd be amazed. I mean, even in just three or four seconds, you can feel the shift in the room. When we go from me talking, 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 to finally just being quiet. And it didn't take more than a few seconds to feel the, how substantial, um, qualitatively, that quiet is. And so even if you can't expand the 10 minutes... If you sit there with that kind of quiet for a full minute, you'll begin to realize that you may be able to open up a considerable space if if you're willing to to change just a few things and to recognize what can be brought into a minute of silence. Um, A third thing that's possible, at least, especially in a primary care practice or any kind of practice where you have long... Um, relationships is to recognize that this is a reciprocal responsibility for um, for for um, honoring the ten minutes and making the ten minutes as good as possible. It's reciprocal, and so you know, at my practice, what we do is we encourage our patients to meditate at home, so that you too can come in unscattered. You too can come in focused and ready. Um, In my practice, um, we begin with, we have 10 minutes. We begin with one minute. We take one of those minutes and we tithe it. We tithe 10% 
of our 10 minutes. We tithe 10% of it. And, you know, if it's a Christian practice, you can say, you know, to God in prayer. But if it's, if it's a practice practice, then you can do a Matthew 25. We tithe 10% of our time to silence. And that's where we gather ourselves so that the other nine minutes of our 10-minute thing can be us being present to each other. You know, I've never heard anyone say that before. I've never even thought about it. You know, but why not? I mean, that sounds like a good idea to me, even as an experiment. Um, but, you know, why not those kinds of things? Those are super simple, and they don't cost money. But it seems to me that they are things that are theologically interpretable, but they're shareable in a pluralistic environment. That sharing this kind of approach to flourishing is not proselytizing. You know, this is just being being faithful. You know, this is becoming a healer. And so that's what I think about the 10 minutes, you know. Um, and, and I believe that a group like this, which is so um, interested in the intersection of what happens in medicine and what happens in theology, which is a framing discourse, right? And so inside theology, you can ask a lot of questions that can't be asked in other sorts of um, non-framing discourses, you know? Including, you know, I love stories. Everyone knows that I love storytelling, but literature is not a framing discourse, you know? I mean, literature is a mode, you know, of expression, but it's not itself a framing discourse. Theology is a framing discourse. Um, And so I think this is something y'all could do over time, is to begin to collect ways to make that 10 minutes sacred. And you can use that as a, you know, everyone's going to have a different kind of practice, but if you use... If you use, you know, find your metaphors. You know, I think of the room now almost like a theater. And I think of what happens in there because I'm interested in improvisation, not for the sake of improvisation, but for the sake of the discipline of remaining open, of remaining open to surprise, of remaining nimble in response to an unexpected reality that comes my way. That's improv for me. And so it's it's a small improvisational theater, but you know, you can, you can get good at improv. And there are people, um, that, that the reason they're good is because they keep practicing, they keep practicing intentionally. So if you just worked on that, you know, what do I do outside the room? That's where I'm going to start. What, what is it? So is there a thing I can do out here? And then I open the door and I go in. Is there a thing that both of us can be, you know, doing in the room. Maybe the question also, like I said, is what does the patient do before they come in? Um, and it's not collect their insurance information. That's not what I'm talking about. And then the third question is, what do I do when I leave the room? Um, and that's, that is, you know, the last piece of the 10 minutes that I think is extremely important. Because if there's nothing between the chunks of 10 minutes, if I just walked out of the room... And, and I delivered something to this person that changed their life. Um, it is true that I have my next patient waiting. But we have to, in a dysfunctional environment where there is no space for breathing, we have to ask the question, what happens in between? That's five. Is that five minutes? Oh, one minute. It's down to one minute? That was no, quick. No, this is in oh. the spirit of improv. I'm going to trust that you're not going to block this, but you're going to over Oh, okay. Uh, yes, and. I, 
I'll, yes, uh, I wonder if we might get some, some other questions. From I'm still there. answering the first question. Obviously a highly stimulating question. Yeah. 18 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then let's stop there. Whatever a way will be made. Yeah, comments, too, would be nice while I eat my sandwich. Uh, or thoughts, you know, or other things. Yeah, questions. Mm-hmm. Last question about it. Um, so I, I was having a conversation with some other medical students um, in their fourth year who are doing interviews and kind of traveling to different hospitals and um, seeing how different systems work. And there was um, a story that one of them um, talked about as they were like talking to the residents there that um, in this specific whatever specialty it was. Um, there, it was obviously really busy and they were having a ton of patients come in. Um, and the question came up that this person kept coming in to the hospital and being admitted and kept um, being discharged and was homeless. Um, and we had a conversation as to what the role of a physician or a med student or someone on the care team is to do in that situation. Um, and I guess my question is, how do you carry, you talked about that Matthew 25 framework, but how do you carry your theology and your personal morals into, A, that situation with the patient hmm. within the bigger framework of like the medical system, mm-hmm. and B, with um, coworkers or co-residents or attendings and people who share those same values but have a different perspective? Um, for example, like personally, I was like, well, I could never feel okay like discharging someone to nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and a Christian that I was talking to said, well, I would be fine with it. Um, and I, I didn't know how to um, think about that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to, to frame those two very different perspectives from what I thought was like a similar place of um, value. Well, you know, one thing that's helpful is to figure out all of the good reasons why the person you disagree with is right. Um, and that's hard to do. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to hear someone say, yeah, I'd be fine discharging this homeless person back into homelessness. Um, and to hear them say that as a Christian. And to... Um, and to... Um, you know go on to say, uh, well, what are all the reasons why this person's right? When it seems like they're just wrong. And um, so I'm going to give you all the reasons why they're right, just to model it. All right? All right, here's the first reason why they're right. It's what Jesus did. Jesus, Son of God, capable of healing, capable of raising the dead, did not walk around in a maximally efficient way and heal this person, and this person, and this person, and this person, and knock on doors, and come in and heal, and heal, and heal. You know? When, when Jesus is sitting there drinking wine at some Pharisee's house and getting, you know, his feet washed and stuff, he could have been out, he could have been out healing people. Like, not many people have that power. What's he doing just, like, sitting around eating dinner with Zacchaeus, you know? I mean... You got to be kidding me. That's the, that is not an efficient use of resources. <laughs> and um, what's interesting is that there is someone in Scripture who made exactly that argument. 
which was Judas. Judas was all upset about the expensive perfume being poured all over his feet when it could have been used for the poor, right? So, we'll start with Jesus as, um, as, a, as a person who apparently didn't, you know, didn't seem to stress too much over, over, over trying to get everyone okay. All the homeless, all the sick, all the dying, and everyone like that. Now, I don't know, I don't know, there's probably more stuff to say about that, but I'm just pointing out one thing in the interest of Brett's observation of limits of time. But limit is the second reason why they may be right. And so one of our spiritual callings is to recognize that we are not God, that we are serving God, and that it may very well be that if we try to expand ourselves so that we are accommodating everything, on the surface it may look like we are doing a noble and Christian and loving thing. But it may also be an act of refusing to accept that I am limited. That I, I am only so tall, I can only stay awake so long, I only have so much energy, and I have competing obligations, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, if I have decided to have kids, well, there they are, and they won't go away. And so I have to do things for them and with them that requires that I give them time and money, which means less time and money for others. And so coming to terms with our own limits may be a good reason to say, you know, I wish the world were different, but I'm an ER doc, and I see about 10 homeless people a night on a shift. And so if I am not going to feel comfortable sending any of them home, which for my four shifts in the week is going to mean 40 homeless people a week, then I've got a problem. And what I may have to do is to reconcile myself to the reality that the fact that they're homeless is a sign of a larger problem with the powers and principalities. And my call is to love them in the room for those 10 minutes and to bear witness to the suffering in a faithful way, um, to try to remain pliant in my heart so that I don't become cold in, in reaction to their suffering, you know and those sorts of things. But I can do all of that and still be human-sized. Um, I can still be what God created me to be, which is a very limited person, um, which I think many people here would agree. <laughs> um, and so, so that's, that's the, second, you know, the second reason. Um, and I think the third reason is, um, is the location of the injustice and the location of the, of the solution. Because, as I mentioned, this person is not homeless um, as an accidental, isolated event inside of an otherwise just society. When you live in a society where three people have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the country, this is not a just society, you know? And so it may very well be that while I am lamenting the sadness that we do not yet know, we, have, we do not have what it takes to help all of these homeless people who come through my ER 
given the circumstance that we live in, which is an unjust society. It may be that the diagnosis of the problem lies elsewhere and the solution lies elsewhere. And we need to lean on people who think in a way that will amend the wealth inequity in our country, for example, and redistribute. And that seems to me like the kind of thing that um, a Christian called to policy rather than being called into the 10-minute room in the ER uh, might be called to, you know? And so I get the fourth thing would be, given that there are different people called to different things, we're a church, we're a community. And so despite the American rhetoric about the rugged individual, we can only move forward communally. So I may be called to walk into the room for 10 minutes and respond to that person. Someone else may be called to be an advisor to the Republican caucus on wealth distribution, you know, on tax policy, um, on thinking more about progressive taxation instead of a new sales tax that will affect the poor as much as it affects Donald Trump, you know. So these are my four reasons why the other person, I still think you're right. <laughs> but but what, I, what I would say is that in the context of... Um, of this kind of thing, or of, of two Christians trying to take seriously the spiritual nature of the vocation, the, the way that that is not independent, it bears on our spiritual life. I think that the first thing to do is to think, all right, this other person who I have regard for thinks differently than me. Let me try to find every reason I can why they're right. If they try to tell me why they're right and they're stumbling in their words, let me do everything I can to help them strengthen their argument to make it the best argument possible. And then we can have the best conversation because I begin with the baseline assumption that I may be wrong, right? So starting with the sense that I may be fallible um, is, a great, is a great place to start. Does that make sense? Yeah, the next one's going to be like 12 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> hmm? So who... Um, who are examples of other people in your life you know who manage or try to flourish within the amount of this we have? Can you give some examples of what their practice looks like? You know, I, the only people that I know who aren't trying to flourish inside of a broken system are people who are looking for a way out. People who are looking for an escape. And there's lots of ways to escape. You can, you know, and, and, and it's important to take this to uh, the way that I, that, that I mean it. Um, the, so you can escape into administration. Um, you have to say, well, what are you escaping? You know, um, And it can be different for different people. But there are also people who are called into administration. Okay, If we don't have people who have the capacity to do the very difficult things that have to happen inside the, pre the Duke president's office, you know, the, we're not going to have a, an institution capable of delivering the kind of good that we're capable of delivering, right? Um, but there is a sense in which people escape. So people who escape are, they're saving themselves. Um, they haven't found a way to stay in, but that is not a source of shame, you know? It, it's not something that we should do, the, you know, because there's a lot of shame in medicine. We shame each other very often. It's like, what, not up to the task? You know, feeling a little weak around the edges, and we all hate weakness. Um, so it's not that at all. And when we talk about these kinds of things, like we have to be super like, cognizant of that kind of thing. Um, the uh, is, is escape always bad? No. At the beginning, 
we were talking about the difference between systole and diastole, right? And it may be that if someone is in a position where the only way to stay in, in the game is to be like this all the time, that the only way they can find for the other part to happen is to move into a different area. And so that may actually just be a, a reasonable way of taking into account my own limitations. That may be a strategy that actually, you know, leads to, to good, where the alternative may be that I kill myself, you know, um, or find some other way of coping with my maladaption to a bad system. Um, but everyone that I know who is drawn to staying in is looking for a way to flourish. And... Um, that's why but I just think we have resources in this kind of context um, that a lot of people don't have. Because many times you'll see, you know, when medicine is trying to, you know, people inside medicine are trying to find a way to flourish. They use whatever tools, you know, are kind of ready to hand. But it's the same tools that caused the problem in the first place. I mean, they're not, fi they're not fixing anything. One of the best things that, Jeff Bishop said was the last sentence of his book, The Anticipatory Corpse, maybe only something like theology can save medicine. And what Jeff was insistent on, and again, he's always hyperbolic. He is like always 500% hyperbolic. <laughs> but what he insisted on is that he gives 350 pages of philosophical diagnosis of what's wrong with medicine and 10 pages about why he doesn't know what the answer is. But one thing he is clear on is that we're going to have to reach outside of medicine to find the resources to heal the institution. He also thinks it's worth healing. It's a, it's a stiff critique that he gives, but he says it's the critique of a friend, a friend of medicine, you know? And so I think I, everyone that I know who's trying to stay in medicine is looking for ways to flourish, and they're finding some, you know? There's some great placards on the wall, I'm a big fan of laminated placards for work-life balance. Sometimes I just sit there and read them before lunch, and I just feel so much better. Um, but I think that the work of the sort that's done in this room or in this group in theology, medicine, and culture, this kind of thing, um, is a way to... Um, do the same thing that everyone else is trying to do, which is how do you flourish in a dysfunctional system? We all know it's terrible. We all sit there grumbling while we're writing notes on the electronic medical record. and you know. But I think that we can talk about that in a way that very few people can. But it's because we're reaching outside of medicine to grasp tools and then bring them in. Not in service to medicine. We let the tool be the tool because we need we need theology to be theology if it's going to be of any genuine help to medicine. But because you engage issues that are inside medicine, um, you can do some things that others simply won't have the language or the tools for because they just spent the last 15 years, 80 to 100 hours per week, training in the language of biology, liability, risk management, and finance. And none of those languages are going to provide you an answer to the question, how do you flourish in a dysfunctional institution? So I think y'all actually are on to it. It's just the work goes on, right? Please join me in thanking Ray Barker.